You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Ben and Kelly. Welcome to another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report. We're broadcasting live here from the Internet Law Center in downtown Santa Monica, the heart of Silicon Beach. Um, please be seated. We have a great show for you today. Um, this is probably the only talk show in Los Angeles not talking about LeBron James. But um, our focus today is on Sacramento. And um, there's a famous quote that laws are like sausages cease to inspire respect in proportion as we know how they are made um, and that's John Godfrey Sachs and today we're going to talk about the legislative process in California state capital of um, Sacramento and we have in a period of a few days we've had a rapid succession of an privacy bill that went from dead to law in a matter of seven days. We have a net neutrality bill that went from um, with strong support to dead to back live and viable and, and seemingly um, destined for passage in, in a matter of a week. And then we've had an email bill that was pitched as just a clarification of existing law, but was actually a, a total Christmas present to plaintiff's lawyers, um, inched through the assembly and now is 
inching towards passage in the Senate. And so we're going to be talking about each of those three landmark bills. And we understand that to an extent, this is kind of like those videos you see of Shakespeare in 10 minutes or less. <laughs> but uh, we have a good panel today to kind of help us grasp what's going on here. And um, we're joined by... Jared Gordon, and Jared is with McCormick Barstow in Fresno, and uh, also with us is Joshua De La Rose Hyman um, at Data Law in San Francisco. So, gentlemen, are you with us? It's great to be here. Yes. And um, so, thank you for joining us. And uh, and with the with the constraints that we have, you know, you know, obviously we we can't. Um, we're doing somewhat of a, a Cliff Notes version of what's going on, but um, why don't we start first with this landmark privacy bill, um, the California Consumer Privacy Act of 2008. And for listeners, we have details on each of these bills in our show notes, which are at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. And as always, follow us on Twitter at cyberlawradio. So, um, AB 375 was inactive um, on in late June <laughs> and then in a matter of seven days it becomes law. Um, how did that happen? So this is Josh. Um, it, it happens in, in the way that sausage is made. Uh, <laughs> my understanding is that there was a very wealthy real estate uh, mogul who has a passion for privacy. And he had created a proposition for the California ballot, um, which had much of this language in it. And he you said that he was gonna run it as a proposition so that it would be run in that process. He then went to the California legislature and said, I am going to have this unless you pass something very similar to what I have on my proposition. The California legislature um, worked with him and came up with this 10,000 word plus bill as a way of placating him so he wouldn't run the proposition. Now, this is how this became our law in seven days. Is it, uh, is, Jared, one. It's astounding, yeah, Jared. I, I'll add a little bit more color to that process, if you don't mind, Josh. So my understanding Please. is that um, part of the reason that it was so accelerated is that um, the, the final day of passage, which was, uh, I think, last Thursday, uh, that was the final day on which... Um, the uh, backer of the initiative could withdraw the initiative. So everything had to happen by then. He was clear that it had to be signed into law by the governor in order for him to be comfortable withdrawing his initiative. And so it was all a matter of, of uh, everyone accelerating their timetables in Sacramento in order to meet this uh, initiative withdrawal deadline. And amazingly, the legislature actually did it. I was surprised they managed to move as fast as they did, even though... Uh, it was clear that there was some broad deal and agreement cut to avoid his initiative. The uh, the, init the result hasn't been um, 
hasn't been exactly universally welcomed. Um, Professor Eric Goldman from Santa Clara Law, whom you guys are familiar with, um, said the result is a sweeping, lengthy 10,000 words, insanely complicated and poorly drafted privacy regulation that will govern the world's fifth largest economy. Needless to say, this rushed and non-inclusive process created a law with many defects ranging from typos and drafting errors to terrible policy ideas. But other than that, sounds like he loves it. <laughs> and the only uh, criticism I would have of Professor Goldman's views on that uh, is that it, it won't just govern California's economy. Uh, I mean, that might be true in some very technical sense, but as we all know, uh, what happens to the internet in California effectively happens to at least the all of the United States and probably to the internet as a whole across the world. So, Jared, I, go ahead. Oh, I, I would just like to say that uh, uh, Eric Eric Gold, um, Goldman actually said that a a privacy bomb is about to be dropped on the California economy and the global internet. So, he I think he he expects it to affect everyone. And so how, help us get our arms around what exactly this does. Is it, I've heard this is GDR like, um, GDPR-like. Josh, what would you say? So, um, well, I'd say that that's definitely one element of it. Uh, GDPR governs uh, consumer data in the European Union. Um, and this was definitely inspired partially on GDPR compliance. Um, it, we, but it's also been inspired on other elements too, uh, including the Cambridge Analytica um, abuses whereby uh, Facebook and other social media groups were abused by the Russians during the election. And it was also based on the Equifax breaches. So the idea was to cure those three things um, in one giant mega bill. I, I think it's the best way I can describe it. And when you try to cram that much stuff into one thing, you get a very muddled, muddled law. And it, it sounds like this isn't done. In this. Even though it is passed as law, it doesn't go to effect in January 2020. So I, I have a feeling much of 2019 in Sacramento is going to be either clarifying this law or postponing the effective date, or both. I think you're absolutely correct. There's so much ambiguity and confusion in this as written that it'd be very difficult to enforce. One thing it does do is it both empowers and funds the California Attorney General's office to interpret and to give advice to companies and, and those affected by it. So they clearly understand there's a lot of ambiguity here. And um, so what what... What are you telling clients about this? How and how are they reacting? My clients are utterly dumbfounded by this because they spent a lot of money under the GDPR compliance process. So to have this, which is another ambiguous um, standard that they need to comply with, is, is flummoxing. Yep. 
Can we we gonna stop for a second, Josh? Yes. Do you have a landline we can call you at? The sound is awful. I'm sorry. Let me let me try a solution here. Because uh, we're getting like feedback and echo. Yeah. Let me try. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna hang up. Is there a number I should call? No, we can call you, Ricky. Are you there? Uh, so you're not getting any on your end. Josh, are you hearing an echo? Or feedback? I'm hearing a vague echo. A vague. Um, what a word thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's within the penumbra of the echo. It, it comes and goes, I think. It does. Do you hear it now? I hear like a zzz. After, maybe that's my headset. I don't know. Josh, you hearing? I was hearing it a little bit earlier. Um, it, it comes and goes. Let me let me try moving around a little bit. Okay. Is that better? I just hear, and every time you stop, there's like a. Zzz. Do you hear that, Josh? Uh, yeah, I, I was I was getting there? a little bit of it. Um, it was worse before. It seems better, but there's uh, something noticeable still in the background. And you're not hearing it, Ricky. Okay. Okay. All right. We'll just have to do it. Um, I'm sorry. Okay, that's good. All right, let's let's plot along. I'm sorry. So you, um, let me just remember where you were. You just finished or what you're telling your clients that it's a muddled mess. Um, Jared, what what's your take? What how are you telling your client? Are you just telling them if you happen to have time at the beach this weekend? Here's some here's some nice ten thousand word reading. You know, it, it, it's funny that you mentioned that because I actually have had zero questions about it so far. Uh, I think my clients just don't even know about it yet, and I haven't sent out um, a, a notice to people because I feel like I don't understand the new laws terms well enough uh, to really be able to inform my clients as to what they need to do under AB through uh, five. I mean, it, it's it's such a muddled mess um, that. You know, it, it will probably be weeks before I understand enough how it's going to impact my different clients to be able to give them some kind of uh, personalized notice. And I think given the the sort of complexity of the law and, and the mishmash of, of different privacy-related ideas that are stuck into this, I'm not sure that it's that helpful to send out a sort of broad, generalized description, uh, at least to a lot of my clients, they'll care about particular provisions that impact them highly, but who will be impacted by what provisions I think varies quite a bit from the, the uh, to the extent that I understand what the new requirements are, uh, at least as of 2020. Now, one of the criticisms, uh, that, you know, if you're familiar with Mike Masnick at TechDirt, he says it takes an, um, it takes an insanely broad view of what is personal information. Um, do you guys have a, a sense? Do you agree with that? or? I definitely agree, and I think that's part of the problem in, in terms of figuring out even who and what aspects of a business it applies to. Uh, just given the the sheer scope of, of uh, what kind of information is covered, it, it makes uh, personal data under uh, GDPR look like uh, a limited definition. And um, what are the other, when you guys talk about the, the problems you have with the bill, what are some of the other provisions that um, are going to make people, you know, swallow hard? 
Well, one one element I think that will make people swallow hard is that there is a new cause of action, uh, a private cause of action for security breaches. And whenever you enter a new private cause of action, you'll see class actions relating to these. So that's going to be something that you'll hear a lot about as it fleshes out. Well, and also it's not just class actions, as you as Jared and I know very well. Um, it's it's people who will make a living out of finding, you know, getting claims uh, and finding willing plaintiffs, you know, to just repeatedly sue people over this. Which is, that's yeah, what we've I, seen in the spam context. It'll be this plus... So we're starting uh, to see that... We're starting to see that in the GDPR as well. We're seeing things that are called GDPR trolls. Yeah. So as this is an analogous to the GDPR, I suspect we'll see that as well. And and is is there any... So we, we had uh, the proposition, I believe it was 78, that passed, that changed you know, the business and the professions code um, that to require that in certain consumer um, redress cases, the consumer actually have to show harm. Is is this going to be subject to Prop Seventy Eight, or does it somehow circumvent that? That's a great question, and I don't think it's clear at this point. Because that that's an important point. I mean, that that was basically a proposition that passed designed to address basically you know nuisance litigation and if if they can circumvent that here um you you know what's going to happen you could i think see the kind of splits that you're seeing at the federal level on um uh, spokio standing issues relating to personal data breaches where some courts come down in favor of the idea that that uh, merely having that that information disclosed or not complying with this law um, is is an injury because essentially the California legislature says that there's this right that you have under this uh, law and and uh, you know any injury to that law is, is an injury. In fact, um, I think there will be other courts that probably will come down. Um, the other way, particularly to the extent that it's it's pretty clear that it's a you know professional plaintiff, where uh, courts are I think maybe sometimes more willing to try to find standing reasons to get rid of them. I mean, that's so more to at the federal level, but well, one last question before we break, and and that is you know, the last time California enacted a major law that kind of reshaped the internet. Um, it was in 2003 when they passed the law banning spam, and Congress stepped in with the 82 days to say no, no, sorry, um, and and they uh, passed the Can Spam Act to you know to take effect the very day that the California law would have gone to effect. So you know we don't have to actually see a rush to action since this won't go go into effect to 2020 but do you think there's any likelihood that congress may step in and try to create a either clearer or a more um watered down version of the california law in a normal congress i would say yes (laughs) it's good i I take that as a no um jared I, I agree that it would be good policy. Um, I, I think actually, even independent of, of 
uh, this new law, um, it would make sense for Congress to address that only because of GDPR. And I think right. that there's, on a, on a long-term level, um, that there's probably some need for the U.S. to harmonize with Europe in, in a more uh, holistic fashion, uh, the way in which we handle privacy so that we stop ending up in the, you know, repeated problems with privacy shield and, and um, uh, all of those sorts of issues. So there, there probably is some multi-year, multilateral negotiations that will have to go on to address that. I wonder whether there's enough time, even with the January 1, 2020 um, deadline, to get legislation passed by Congress. Uh, it, it, yeah, it's tight. That's, that's a and com- complex issue Yeah, in a short time. Um, but we need to harmonize with our advertisers. So... Um, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk more about Sacto Gone Wild after these messages. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Ready to do a podcast for your business? Make that podcast elevate to enterprise level. Let WebmasterRadio.fm expedite and execute your podcast to build your brand and broaden your customer base. WebmasterRadio.fm has worked with the world's biggest tech brands, Google, Yahoo, and Bing, and have worked with fast-growing brands like ShipStation and GoDaddy. Now it's your turn. Contact brasco at wmr.fm and rush your enterprise-level podcast into production at a very reasonable rate. Email brasco at wmr.fm. Looking for a better way to get more traffic and interaction to your Facebook page? Imagine Facebook interactivity on your page like you've never seen. Introducing your new Facebook marketing fix, So Social, the new and revolutionary way to easily manage and automate your Facebook contest and sweepstakes. Create a fun, easy-to-win contest by writing a simple Facebook post. Watch your post go more viral and generate loads of interaction. Track your traffic and generate email lists with ease. So Social is mobile-friendly and complies with Facebook terms of service. Let So Social give your Facebook page some flash today. Zoom over to zosocial.com. Are you looking for the best in WordPress speed, security, and scalability? WP Engine is a digital experience platform for WordPress, powering digital experiences for large brands around the world. With easy-to-use site management tools and powerful do-it-your-way development features, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with a faster site on WP Engine. Learn more on WPEngine.com. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back and we're talking about the latest uh, rash of legislation from privacy to net neutrality to email legislation. And uh, we have a very distinguished panel. Um, Jared, um, why don't you tell us just a, a brief minute or so about what you, who you are and what you do? Uh, so again, I'm, I'm Jared Gordon. I'm of counsel at McCormick Barso, uh, and uh, in, in my prior career, I was in-house counsel at um, an online advertising network uh, and uh, at a Facebook games company. 
And now uh, my practice primarily involves uh, either representing e-commerce companies or representing companies that do business both on and offline and uh, assisting them with their online uh, regulatory compliance, um, e-commerce terms and conditions, and, and, and uh, uh, complex, uh, like high-stakes, high-value uh, transactions. And Jared is uh, calling in from Fresno, where... Um, one of our most loyal listeners lives and uh, so um, in addition we had Josh why don't you just tell us about your practice in a minute or so absolutely Um, my name is Joshua Delarios Hyman I am the managing director of data law in San Francisco which is a boutique law firm that deals with data driven clients I work predominantly with technology companies and funders to build uh, privacy-based products and technology solutions. Um, mostly my practice these days involves general data protection regulation compliance and helping companies comply with the European regulations while they're in the United States. Um, Every couple of months, the practice changes, but the overarching theme of my practice is connecting data and the law and helping companies get what they need to get done, done. All right. Well, thank you for that. You, and I'm sorry. Did you there was a this? bunch of static. I don't know if you heard that. Oh, not to... yeah. Don't, don't reference that while we're on the air. Okay. Um, <laughs> let's take a let's take a pause um ricky when you go back if you can just delete that last um yeah and uh, all right so um you just if you have an issue guys just say um break pause five seconds and then say what the issue is um and then that way it, it we can we can flag it when we when we post this all right um so we, we talked about the privacy bill, and now the next bill is the Net Neutrality Act. And um, the California Internet Consumer Protection and Net Neutrality Act of 2008, that uh, went from steam, steaming to passage to dead to steaming to passage uh, in an equally short period of time. And um, which one of you guys wants to, to tell us how that happened? Well, I'll, I'll say on my end that I, I was actually not at all surprised that uh, there was, you know, sort of a renewed interest in it. Um, to me, I, I was surprised that it didn't pass faster, uh, given that Daily Own is the sponsor. I mean, I, you know, that's a, a lot of juice behind the bill. Um, and I'd always kind of expected, given the, the importance of net neutrality to uh, the Democrats' platform on tech issues that this bill was going to pass. And it was a surprise to me that it took as long as it did to, to get through uh, the Senate. And you know, California is one of 36 states trying to pass their own net neutrality laws. And the, the bill um, put forward by Senate President um, De Leon, who's also running for Senate against um, Senator Feinstein, um, was called the gold standard by the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And it it kind of got railroaded. Uh, there's a hearing 
it came before after passing the Senate, it came before the Assembly Communications Committee and Chairman Miguel Santiago pushed through a whole series of amendments that gutted the bill without even hearing any testimony. And uh, so there was a big backlash against him. So, you know, he's a Democrat and they felt that he had betrayed his own party. Um, and he ultimately folded and agreed to restore everything. But it's, uh, it was a remarkable development. But let's talk about the framework. The, the Fed, so the FCC net neutrality order, which was just went into effect, uh, reverses the prior net neutrality order by um, the, the Obama team under you know, Chairman Wheeler, and um, which was upheld by the D.C. Circuit. So now this, Fed, this new net neutrality order uh, claims to preempt state law. So there's a question about whether these laws can even are even um, permissible, but that that never seems to stop states from doing what they want to do anyway. But you know, it can't preempt states from acting in their role as a buyer, and that's one of the things you see in these laws. Is um, with Montana being the first to act, is uh, directing that you know, public funds can't be used to purchase services for company from companies that violate these net neutrality standards. What's your What's your take on that, Josh? Well, the dormant commerce clause concern uh, of having 49 different net neutrality laws, or in including California, is, is, is something that is a legitimate concern for the federal government. But that being said, the idea that you can just, with a regulation, negate the, the rights of the states to have a net neutrality or, or in, in their purchasing is, is, is really a, a difficult question that, that really is a good federal question. And again, this is a, a congressional problem where we, we don't have a good Congress. So that is going to be an issue the courts are going to have to decide. Well, and actually, since you, funny you mentioned Congress, because there actually is a petition in Congress to reverse the um, the, the Pi uh, Internet order, um, and it, that passed the Senate, and they have until the end of this year to get it through the House, and which would then reverse um, the, the the new rule. Um, but that you know, the, 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 there hasn't been a vote on that, and it doesn't seem like one's going, likely to happen anytime soon. Yeah, I don't. I think it's going to be stuck in the House, and it won't. It won't end up getting out of the House. Um, that's that's my understanding of the practical politics of it. Um, and I think part of the problem, and it, it's really unfortunate because the Obama administration decided to push through net neutrality using the FCC, uh, and maybe this was uh, Chairman Wheeler of the FCC wanted to do it, and this was the only way that was within the FCC's potential powers to do it this way. But he, he did it by imposing Title II utility um, categorization on um, internet service providers, and that creates a whole host of other issues that, on a policy level, are both, um, I think, unnecessary and undesirable for um, internet service providers and probably for the internet generally. I think in, in many ways the California law is, is much better in that it avoids that problem. Um, if I had been the, the one advising the seven Democrats, which I certainly wasn't, uh, <laughs> what I would have suggested is that they not do anything like um, what, the, the, what they're doing, which is to try and reverse 
the reversal of the uh, regulation by Chairman Pai, um, but instead that they just affirmatively adopt net neutrality principles by statute at the federal level, and they would avoid 90% of the problems with uh, the way that the federal net neutrality order was, was put in place by the FCC, and um, they probably would avoid a lot of the opposition as well. I mean, I think there's a valid point to um, having ping pong the internet policy that, okay, so we have net neutrality for the next four or eight years, and then, okay, we now it's the Republican administration. We have the exact opposite. Although, I think this order, unlike, you know, the standard under you know, Chairman Powell and others, other under Republican administrations, who at least espouse the principles of net neutrality, and, you know, it, it, the question was, how should it be enforced you know whether it should be you know through the article two or not um what you're or title two or not what you're seeing with Pai's order is he's actually saying uh, you know not not upholding the net neutrality principles at all he's saying you can throttle you can do all these things that for a decade we've been saying is wrong as long as you disclose it and in some markets, there's no choice. What happens if there's only one or two choice options? And they both say, hey, yeah, we're, we're both going to throttle you. We're both going to do this other thing. How does that protect consumers? And so um, I think that's often lost in debate. This is not just really about reversing the Obama era net neutrality. It's actually just rejecting the whole concept of net neutrality. You're right. And in many ways, I think it, it puts it something closer to the the previous uh, FTC regulation approach, which is, you know, going to be oriented around whether or not there's disclosure that's adequate and, and truthful representations as opposed to, uh, you, you know, maybe meaningfully bad uh, service that is, is contrary to expectations as long as those, you know, expectations are in some way tempered by notice. And um, Josh, what's your, what's your take on this? I think the most concerning element of all of this is that the companies who are involved in this are going to only be able to plan on the short term with the assumption that in the next administration, if it switches over, net neutrality will be back. Um, or it may not. So there's there's never that, that certainty you need for long-term planning. And these are massive, massive organizations that are building these things. So that is a huge problem. And if you have to do it across four, uh, 50 states and everyone is different, it, it's going to cost the consumer a huge amount of money every time you flip. Right. And, and the you know, the issue, as you mentioned, and so the FCC has a role, and and I think that's part of the reason why this is encouraged, is to exp is to expand broadband broadband deployment. You know, that is part of its mission, uh, according to Congress. And, and so, if ISPs are somehow afraid to invest because they don't know what the policy is going to be two, four, six years down the road, that, that runs counter to the FCC's mission. Absolutely. So would it be fair to say that the big winners in, in this all these state legislative efforts are one, the tech lobbyists who are definitely going to be being quite busy across the country. But eventually it's going to be all the lawyers and the communications lawyers who have to litigate this about whether or not they're preempted. 
Yeah, I think we'll be looking at at least 40 field preemption uh, and dormant commerce clause challenges, uh, depending on how many states end up passing some version of net neutrality, which, uh, you know, I think it's likely California will pass one and, and probably most of the rest of the states considering it will eventually get around to it before uh, it gets to the appellate level and gets knocked down. It, it, it's, but there actually there's one issue that's interesting here. It's kind of a, a karma issue, you might say, is that <laughs> excuse me, the same day that the um, the Wheeler FCC adopted the you know the the net neutrality principles and you know and enforceable under Title II, um, they also adopted. A, a a rule um, preempting some state rules that restricted uh, the ability of municipalities to offer broadband. You know, it, in essence, they were anti-competitive efforts. You know, lo- you know ISP lobbies you know, getting a hold of state capitals and saying, "Stop these, you know, these municipalities from competing with us." And um, and so they preempted that. And the ISPs fought it and won and said, you know, the FCC can't preempt those laws. And so will that president hurt their ability to, in this case, you know, have the ISPs that has their victory uh, in the prior case? Is that going to come back and haunt them here? I I think that they will haunt the small ISPs, but the larger ones will be able to use that as an advantage and, and a way of, of end-gaming around. So like if the Google right, Fiber... No, I, but I was saying, made, will, will yeah. that president will that president prevent them now from saying, you know, because the, the question is, can the FCC preempt these laws? And so the well, ISP is at one in round one, but does round one um, mean they lose in the bigger fight? But in a sense, those might be very different questions because... Uh, federal rules that prohibit a state legislature from from uh, creating a law or, or taking uh, even a, a policy position, uh, maybe not strictly in a statutory sense, those are, are largely prohibited because of the you know separation of states from the federal government as dual sovereigns. And, you know, there's um, a case law going back to, I think it's New York versus U.S., which is a toxic waste case from the I think late 80s um, where the Supreme Court's repeatedly held um, and I think there's actually even a case from this past term although I can't remember off the top of my head which one it was Um, but the Supreme Court's repeatedly held that the federal government can't tell state legislatures what laws they can and can't pass uh, but they can preempt the state legislative laws so that regardless of what the law is, maybe it's it's not enforced, right? I mean that that I think that's an important distinction to draw. That um, the federal telecommunications laws could be sufficient that they would cover the entire field and, and prevent state level enforcement. Um, I don't think that's the case, given that there's still pretty extensive state level franchising rules and and uh, other telecommunications rules that are specific within states, but. Um, something like this would be a, a harder call. So um, we're going to shift to our third topic, which is a commercial email law, and that was pitched. Um, I went through and looked at the initial hearings, and it was pitched by advocates as, as a, a minor change to close loopholes and provide 
clarification of existing law. And uh, in reality, it was just a giveaway to the, you know, the um, spam lawyers, so they could uh, basically reverse cases that they had lost on, and then broadly expand their ability to sue. And um, Jared, um, you know, you and I have worked c- together in, in trying to fight this bill. Um, and w- one remarkable achievement was the the new California Lawyers Association, which has spun off from the California Bar. All the various sections, the intellectual property section, the business law section, actually took a position and opposed this bill, which is uh, it was a first for, you know, I'm with the intellectual property um, law section, and uh, I don't know if it's true for the business law section, but it was the first time that we had actually taken a position and opposed a bill. I think that's true for the business section as well, um, at least post spinoff from the state bar. So... um and kudos to Jared, who took the lead in, in writing that opposition. But um, so tell us, tell us this, this, we're going to take a break in about a minute and a half, but tell us briefly what, what this about this bill and how it got here. Well, so I think your earlier summary was correct that there's a couple of plans lawyers, uh, uh, particularly uh, <clears throat> one very active um, plans lawyer, who got um, Assemblymember Chow to, to sponsor uh, AB 2546, and it included a number of new private rights of action. It uh, tried to separate out the the body of the email um, from the uh, subject line and other header information, which previously only header and subject lines have really been the subject of uh, <coughs> potential um, claims under California law. And uh, it, it also tried to, to make it more difficult for uh, Various defenses that that um, email advertisers had uh, under case law and, and uh, under the prior statute. So it was sort of a bit of a Christmas tree wish list for the uh, email plaintiffs bar, but uh, and it went through extremely quickly through in the in the assembly uh, before starting to run into opposition in the Senate, including us. So we're going to take a short break. We come back. We'll talk more about this email bill, and uh, we'll give you some final announcements and wrap up And uh, after these messages. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report only on webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. There are over 70 million active podcast listeners in the U.S. WebmasterRadio.fm reaches them all with the largest global distribution of any online business-to-business podcast network through iHeartRadio. 
iTunes, Stitcher, and the WebmasterRadio.fm mobile app, we can target and place your message in front of those active listeners immediately. Now, your message can be delivered with less commitment and investment on over 20 hours of weekly original content. Hosted by the most respected... continue to advance by increasing cure rates in childhood cancer. And donors are important to us because you get the feeling that you have a team behind you. When it comes to research and advancements, there are some things that only we can do because we have the resources and we have the focus. And so if St. Jude doesn't do it, who will? St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Finding cures, saving children. Learn more at stjude.org. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back, and uh, we have an August panel here talking to us about the latest bills coming out of Sacramento that are um, could potentially reshape the Internet. And um, so we're now talking about the email bill, and one of its principal uh, proponents is a, a damn balsam. And uh, my very first appearance on this network was in 2009 on the show Inboxed. And we talked about a, a case that was uh, the host had had against Balsam, and they were kind of crowing on their victory. And it resulted in a six-page letter um, threatening to sue unless there was a retraction, even though the comments were opinions and not defamatory um, and, or privileged under litigation privilege or protected by the First Amendment. And it led me to remind him that while it's clear you have some psychological problem with being challenged and or accepting defeat the proper place to deal with this is a therapist's office and not in the state court system that was my letter to him expressing my view on uh his his six-page demand letter so with that being said knowing he may not be too happy about what we talk about here um what is i see the principal problem of the bill going forward is uh we've, we have been fortunate and able to get a lot of the bills stricken including this this ridiculous provision that you can't use more than one domain um but what what i see, see the big hurdle here is to amend the bill to allow them to sue for falsity in the content and the email because that will um it will supersede existing false advertising law, which under which current law requires both um, that there be harm to the consumer, and um, I'm forgetting one other element of it, but this will make it strictly liable, and you can sue even if there's not harm. What's your take, Jared? I, I mean, I, I think that's an accurate read of the bill, and... Um uh, I think it's a it's a legitimate risk. Uh, you know, can spam's preemption, which has been uh, broadly helpful, and, and for listeners who don't know, the Can Spam Act of 2003 is the federal law that uh, governs email advertising, and and um, states essentially have to write their bills, uh, write their laws around the Can Spam Act's uh, preemption. But its preemption is is um, uh, limited to things that are materially false and misleading. So uh, it does seem to me that uh, the California legislature probably can uh, create a cause of action for materially false and misleading content in the body of an email. 
um, as a matter of law. Now, whether that's a good policy idea, I, I think uh, your point is generally right, Bennett, that it, it does seem to be inconsistent with the way that, that um, the California voters have previously dealt with false advertising and um, unfair competition law claims that if you don't have an actual injury, you can't sue. I, I think um, it's maybe not completely clear-cut, but it does seem like it's likely that you'll be able to sue absent any actual injury. And then that that's troublesome, I think. Um, and, and also, just uh, what bothers me more also is just the way it was pitched, um, that, yeah, this is just a clarification. Oh, it doesn't really do much. When in reality, it is quite a sweeping change. Um, and it, it also, I left out one other element, is the current law requires that the, a plaintiff demonstrate intent or reckless, you know, that you were reckless in you know, regard to the, the truth or falsity of what's in, the, in your advertisement, and this will eliminate that. So um, it's just going to invite so much litigation that, you know, I've, I know clients who are thinking about abandoning email if this bill passes. And, and certainly, if um, it, depending on the kind of, of uh, email marketing that you that your clients do, I, I think the, the original version of the bill that would have been a legitimate response um, before some of the amendments uh, uh, that have been applied by the the uh, state senate committees. It, it was uh, it was potentially monstrous for the internet advertising industry. Um, I think now. It's it's uh it's certainly gotten a lot better, um, and uh, right. I mean, but the point I would make, Jared, is that it had you know, and maybe it was a strategic choice. It had like twelve really repugnant things, and now it's just one or two. But it, at the end of the day, it's still repugnant. Yeah, it's still absolutely problematic for the online advertising industry. Um, I, I definitely agree with that. It still creates uh, significant problems. Uh, there's probably even a, a few places where uh, it arguably is going to run into, you know, various kinds of, of either constitutional or federal law um, issues, at least in some applications. But um, yeah, I mean, now it it it, it at least um, has eliminated some of the worst problems that it, it had. For instance, um, the the most recent set of amendments dropped a, a provision that um, had required courts to treat the, the email header and the body separately. And, um, you know, the more I thought about it, the more that seemed to me like it might actually be the worst part of the bill. Um, I mean, I, I think it actually posed significant commercial speech constitutional problems um, had it been left in. And, and there may still be some commercial speech issues with um, some aspects of, the, of this bill. Um, as it stands, uh, particularly on an as-applied basis, but um, I, I mean, I think there were problems of, you know, potential overbreath and and uh, a potential facial challenge under commercial speech law as, as it's recently evolved. Um, had that provision been left in? Um, so we're right now they're in recess, and uh, so they'll come back in August. And uh, that's when we'll see the net neutrality bill will certainly pass quickly. But there's still a couple more fights on the email bill left. It still has to go through one more committee. Then you have a Senate vote. And then it has to go back to the Assembly 
to um, to approve the amendment. So <coughs> the um, prospect for passage of net neutrality, I would say, is almost a certainty. But this bill um, seems uncertain at this point. Would you agree? I agree. I think it's pretty uncertain what the assembly is going to do with it. You know, when it went through the assembly the first time, um, pre-amendment, it was rushed through. I mean, it was frankly rushed through the the Senate um, hearing process at a rate that I don't remember seeing for any internet law bill um, in recent memory. And uh, you know, clearly that rush has stopped. And I suspect that you know there's going to be some time um, where people maybe take a breath, think about what's really going on here and whether it makes sense to make these kinds of changes. And uh, maybe some people in the assembly who voted yes the first time will have second thoughts and realize that, that they're opening up some of their constituent businesses to a world of hurt. Now, we, we have... Um we only have a few minutes left, and we but we have some landmarks that have that occurred, uh, and one of which is uh, you may be familiar with the famous New Yorker cartoon on the internet. Nobody knows you're a dog. That is now 25 years old. How many? How many? Have you guys ever? Do you guys ever reference that to your clients or in discussions? Uh, I, I, I do. certainly have. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would preface it now um, on the internet. Nobody knows you're a dog except Cambridge Analytica. <laughs> How true! I, I think. Uh, can, please submit that too. <laughs> the email. I'll find. I'll find the email address for the New Yorker cartoons. Um, so that actually, New Yorker cartoon is 175 years old in dog years. Is that right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, I actually, I think they do have like a. I don't know whether it's you caption something, but the New Yorker does have this thing for people to solicit, um, to solicit comments. So that's that's one landmark. Also, I want to give us sh two shout outs. Um, our own Webmaster Radio's own um, co-founder, Darren Babin, turned 5-0 on Monday. And uh, we also want to thank and say happy birthday to Benet Wilson, um, the um, AV travel geek uh, who is a frequent guest every Thanksgiving. Happy birthday to you. So um, we only have a, a few minutes left, guys. If Josh, if people want to contact you or learn more about you, where do you go? Where do they go? Um, you can go to my website at data-law.com or check me out at data law tweet on twitter and jared i have a much worse website so our, our law firm's website is uh mccormickbarstow.com that's uh m-c-c-o-r-m-i-c-k-b-a-r-s-t-o-w.com and we, we have a link to it on the on the show notes um do you have twitter or no uh, I do have Twitter, but uh, I hate Twitter, so I personally don't use it. Um, but I, I am happy to uh, talk to people on LinkedIn, which is... Uh, we, we should have had you on our last show. We talked about the toxicity of Twitter. Um, so <laughs> um, well, that being noted, gentlemen, I, I want to thank you very much. Also, let me give you guys get a plug in. Um, are, what, are you, what are your roles with the, um, the business law section? Do you have titles? I just want to make sure yeah, I get them so right. We're the, the co-vice chairs of the Internet and Privacy Law Committee of the business section of the California Lawyers Association. And then next year you'll be the chair, co-chairs? That is uh, correct. Yeah, assuming that we actually get a quorum together to vote for us. But yes, <laughs> I think that's, uh, <laughs> so, that's in the and so, yeah, so the, the technology and the, um, I'm sorry, what's, what's the name of the subcommittee again? 
It's Internet and Privacy Law yeah. Committee. The, so the Internet Although, Privacy Law Committee, which yeah. used to be the Cyber Law Committee, um, which I once co-chaired, um, does great stuff. If you're, you're interested in it, check it out. In addition, I've been working closely with them in my role with the IP section. We have a, a subcommittee called Technology, Internet, and Privacy, and so we often do similar stuff, and we enjoy working together, and uh, I commend both of them for the work that they've done on this, and it's been fun working with them, and I really want to thank you for coming on today. It's been great fun, and uh, I know we, we kind of took, probably took uh, a big bite um, <laughs> tackling all these three things in one hour, but I I think we came out okay. So thank you very much. Um, join us next week for another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report. And check out the Internet Law Center at internetlawcenter.net. We're a full-service internet firm. And until then, have a great week. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.